What is up, guys? Welcome to the Triage Method podcast. Uh, Paddy is looking different this week. He's no longer six foot five, and uh, he's actually got glasses. So uh, instead of Paddy, we said actually... he's not six foot five. <laughs> You're definitely I could not be six, six foot five. five. <laughs> you don't look six foot five. Damn it! So uh, we not even re- on Zoom. <laughs> no, not even on Zoom. We replaced Paddy this week uh, with uh, Doctor Mike Banner or Banner Eek. Um, <laughs> so we've got a guest, Dr. Mike the second, as he calls himself. Um, so I, for, I came across Mike over, uh, the Instagram as you do. And I found Mike to be a, a very pleasant person. He has a very uh, nice approach to things. And in a, in a, in a time where social media is very much a case of, uh, shouting back and forth at each other. I think Mike is a, a voice of reason, uh, the nice guy. So I said, we get a, get him on, you know, give you a nice pleasant chat to listen to. So, so Mike, how did you get here? Who are you? What's the story and why are you Dr. Mike the second? Oh, I, sometimes I wonder <laughs> how I got here. It's uh, it's, it's a bit of an odd story. Like I, I'm, so I'm a GP down in West Sussex on the South coast of England. I, um, used to be very inactive, very overweight, had no interest in my own health, uh, went on a bit of a journey of change. And through that journey, learned a lot about lifestyle, lifestyle change, behavior change, just developed a bit of an interest in that kind of stuff. Um, I like talking a lot. So I talked a lot about it on social media and things. And I used that as a bit of accountability. So I kind of just started doing a lot of social media initially on Twitter. And then as Twitter got angrier and angrier, <laughs> moved over to Instagram. Um, and then I've ended up doing some work with like the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, where I'm a regional director. Um, I kind of have a bit of an interest in trying to increase education for health professionals and for everybody around like lifestyle and, you know, the improvement of, of lifestyle. Um, and that's about it really, I suppose. The, the Dr. Mike, the second thing is just unfortunate that there's always someone who got there first, isn't there? And I think um, like everyone knows a doctor called Mike, everyone. Um, and actually when I was, when I was finishing up medical school, I, I I'm quite into music as, as you know, um, and I used to go go to a lot of like like bar gigs and stuff. And I used to go and see a lady called Narina Palo play a lot. And I remember having a chat to her at one of her gigs, and she said to me, "Oh, like you're you know you you're coming up to your finals, but this is this is fate, it's destiny because my friend Dr. Mike is moving to to America this summer. So seamlessly, you will take his place, and you will become Dr. Mike the second. And she just started calling me Dr. Mike the Second since then. And then when I needed when I needed a nickname for social media, because I was like, oh, I don't want people to Google me and find out that all I talk about is cake in real life. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was like, I need to have a I need to have a slightly incognito name. And that was that was where it came from, really. Brilliant. <laughs> so you said you said you're a you said you're a GP, and I actually wanted to ask about that because, like, so as as our listeners will probably know, I'm a medical student, so I'm just at the very bottom of that ladder now, only a baby. But even as you enter medical school, I think a lot of stuff opens up to you that you may not have been aware of about medicine, how medicine works, different doctors, etc. And I think like when I speak to people from here in Killarney, and I'd say, you know, I'm studying medicine, it's like immediately, it's like oh, you're going to be a GP. You know, it's just assumed like you're going to be a GP because that's, that's the doctor that they, they know. However, there's, once you get into medicine, you realize that there's actually like a ridiculous amount of different specialties and it's effectively just like 
an endless road of ladders you could climb if you wish to do so. So what made you uh, wish to go down the route of GP? And also, what does that look like? Like when you come out of medical school and then like, where do you go to actually become a GP? Because it's not just a case of you're out and now you're a GP. That's not how it works at all. There's, there's expertise. So what does that look like? I like to think there is some expertise. Unfortunately, Absolutely. not not everybody is not everybody is fully aware of that. So like I remember actually having a chat to some medical students a few years ago and asking them what, you know, what they were intending to do because they were coming up to the end of their medical school and uh, they were talking about oh I haven't quite decided I'm not really sure whether to do medicine or surgery and I was like, "Oh, you know, have you considered general practice?" And the guy said, "Yeah, you know, I've thought about it, but it just seems a bit like the easy way out. You know, I don't, I don't think it would be challenging enough for me. I want to do something that like means something." And I was like, "Yeah, cool, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, yeah. Thanks." And I, I think that you know, this is the thing is like, like I think as as GPs, you sort of develop this. Um, you don't need to be the hero because nobody thinks you're the hero. Like there is a lot of, a lot of feeling among kind of the general public that GPs don't do an awful lot. And because they're the most easily accessible, but they're also the most easily nameable people get very frustrated when they can't get to see their GP. So they assume their GP is not doing very much. And when your GP has to refer you to a specialist, they assume that means that the GP can't manage things and the, you know, but it's just, there's a lot, you know, is it like any career? And this is why I struggle a bit when people are so like angry about politicians and the people running countries and stuff, because I'm like, I'm not really sure that we really know how to run countries. Yes. And we're always like, behaving like we would do it so much better than these people yet none of us are actually the prime minister or have ever been the prime minister so it's quite like and I think that we don't always have that recognition that if you've never done something before you don't really know how to do it but there is this general feeling that you do um, and anyway to, to cut a long story short the general practice is probably in terms of specialties, probably the quickest route into actually completing your specialist training. And that I, I'm not going to lie, that was one of the reasons why I chose general practice. I'd always um, planned to do orthopedic <clears throat> surgery. <laughs> and I laugh when I say that because it's so outlandish as an idea because I'm not in any way the character that normally would be associated. I was going to say, I don't think you're like the stereotype, are you? The God exactly. complex with the hammer. like <laughs> Exactly. But so when I was a medical student, I was attached to this orthopedic department. It was at the Royal Free Hospital um, in Hampstead in London. And I just had the best time with these people. These people were amazing. And they, they lived life the way I wanted to live life. Their ethos was, was similar to mine. They just had fun. They did this really serious, really important job. But there was always like laughter and enjoyment about it. And, and I just, I, I loved that. Um, and then when I qualified and started doing different, um, different medical jobs, I kind of realized there was a lot more to it than just bantering with your mates in, in the orthopedic yeah. office and going and watching operations. Like <laughs> actually, if you wanted to, to do it as a career, you actually have, had to do the operations and the clinics and stuff. And that was a bit different. Um, and it was just like the, the lifestyle in terms of stuff like surgical specializing, like, like you were talking about before, you can climb endless ladders to do things if you want to, but, but sometimes you don't have to. And, you, and sometimes and I think for, for me, I didn't want to spend my whole life focused entirely on my career. And I think a lot of medical specialties do take things over in a sense. 
And when I did general practice, I did general practice as a junior doctor and I just kind of fell in love with it. And I think if I'd been honest with myself, it probably was always what I wanted to do. But my dad and my sister are both GPs. And so I was absolutely determined to do something different and not just be like, oh, so you're just following in everyone else's footsteps. But when I when I did GP, I was like, nah, this is cool. I like the idea that anything can walk through the door. You maintain this total variety of what you get involved in, yet you still have the capacity to do sort of some sense of having a bit, you know, specialist areas and things like that. And it just allows you to do other things with your life and your career that I think are harder to do in other forms of medicine. Like for me, like stuff like writing and podcasting and all of that kind of stuff that I love doing. I don't know that I would have the time or the capacity to do those things if I was, you know, working shifts and stuff still. Yeah. And, and is that what was, was the interest in lifestyle medicine, uh, something that emerged from GP or more, more so from your own journey with trying to improve your own health or both? Def- definitely from my own journey. And then from the realization that the people in the medical profession or in the healthcare service entirely who are the most trusted in giving people advice on their lifestyle are probably the ones who are least well-trained in actually coaching people, which is probably, you know, the knowledge is secondary, I think. I mean, I think knowledge is important, but really it's stuff like coaching that, that is super important. And we don't really, we A, don't do it, and we B aren't trained really to do it. We're trained with communication skills and with consultation skills and with asking questions and establishing what's going on with people, but we're not well-trained in coaching. And then the extent of that coaching tends to be stuff like, okay, you should lose weight or you should exercise more or you should eat less salt, you know? And yet it's not, this is how you will go about doing that. Let's work together to figure out what, you know, what we do. Yeah, I think I think this is another case where, like you 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 brought up earlier, where empathy is actually really important for like looking at the GP profession, but looking at the medical profession in general. Because what I hear from the personal training side of things a lot of the time, or the people who are just more into purely health and fitness, is they'll you know be like, doctors know nothing about nutrition or training, and they don't teach them, or they're not pushing this on their patients, but. I guess when you actually look at the amount of time a doctor has with their patients first and foremost, and also the other priorities that are there in terms of reviewing medications, reviewing symptoms, maybe trying to triage and see, is this an important problem I need to refer on to refer on with, you know, if you're thinking about, um, I don't know, a subarachnoid hemorrhage or something, you're like, all right, you know, sorry, but your squats are not my highest priority. Now, you know, that kind of thing. I think being empathetic from a personal training perspective or a health and fitness perspective, is actually quite important there because you're already doing a lot of important jobs and suddenly being a counselor for someone's behavior, trying to elicit behavior change in a 10 minute consultation or whatever, amongst all those other things, I imagine that's quite challenging, you know? Oh, absolutely. And that's why those things end up being an afterthought because Mm -hmm. It's kind of opportunistically going, oh, and by the way, it'd be great if you stop smoking. Oh, and by the way, it'd be great if you do this. But actually, that's not what that person has come to speak to you about. So they're not, you know, when, when somebody comes to see a personal trainer, they're coming to them because they want to change their lifestyle. They're coming to them because they want to, to exercise, etc. Whereas when someone comes to see a GP, they're coming to them because they've got headaches or knee pain or back pain. 
and you've got to figure out what's, what the actual diagnosis is and then what the management is and then what the lifestyle management is as part of that as well. It's, it, you're right, it's no surprise that it sort of falls by the wayside. And that's why, you know, even people who are, you know, you've got me who's got an invested personal interest in it, but that doesn't mean that every other GP does. So they're not even going to do it as much as I do. And, as much, and what I do is, is minimal already, because again, like you say, you're spending the majority of that 10 minutes practicing the clinical stuff and then the coaching, there's no time for it. Yeah, no, it's completely understandable. And I think, I think if like a, a personal trainer um, or even an interested trainee who talks about this stuff, if they were to spend a week with a GP, it would probably really change their perspective. Uh, because I think sometimes you can be, especially when you like, when you read statistics and, and see that, all right, the majority of the problems that we're dealing with are things like cardiometabolic disease. You kind of get the impression that, okay, so everyone that walks into a GP practice, they're coming in because they're overweight and they want to solve this and their blood glucose is out of, out of the whack or whatever. And then the GT is just saying, Oh yeah, take drugs. You know, it's, like, it's not, the, it's, it's probably not the reality I imagine. So with exactly. that, with that, with that said, um, what does lifestyle medicine mean for you? You know, what, what, what does that mean for you? Has it changed your practice? How do you conceptualize it in your own mind? I mean, to me, lifestyle medicine is just always having in the back of your mind, the, the, intention to improve your lifestyle and i think that's where you know like that's where a lot of people get it wrong and it's so misunderstood because i think a lot of people think that lifestyle medicine is having a perfect lifestyle um and i see you drinking pepsi max and that is like a perfect a perfect segue into talking about the the, the imperfections about what you know what lifestyle medicine is about like so yeah you know i i i did a talk recently and it and it was about diet coke and ice gems because to me that's what lifestyle medicine is so to me it's about taking somebody who is engaging in unhealthy practices or engaging in whatever practices we don't even need to call them unhealthy but it's looking at whatever practices people are engaging in from a lifestyle point of view and seeing if we can optimize those in any way so for example, if somebody is eating a packet of digestive biscuits every day and you switch them to eating a packet of ice gems instead of, instead of that, um, and you reduce the amount of calories, the amount of process, you know, you reduce the amount of calories and processed food that they're doing, that they're consuming by doing that. But a lot of people would be like, how can you advise people to eat ice gems? That's yeah. atrocious. Um, when in reality, they're not getting that it's about moving in the right direction. Because if you try and get somebody from the letter A to the letter Z without working through all the letters of the alphabet in between, it's not going to happen. And I think if you, if you, if you consider the type of person we're talking about, so like the easiest thing for me to, to use as an example is my own like story. So if you take me several years ago, like I used to finish work and go to the pub with my friends and I, and I like, I drank diet Coke at the pub or Coke. Um, like it wasn't, I wasn't there for the drinking, but while we were at the pub, I would have dinner. I didn't cook for myself ever. I would have takeaways or eat out or whatever. So if you then go from that to suddenly going, okay, from, from tomorrow, I want you to pre-prep all of your meals in advance. Um, and I want you to, I want all of your meals to consist entirely of um, plant-based minimally processed whole foods <clears throat> i'd have been like yeah cool i'll try yeah, cool. okay bye you know 
um, it's just not going to happen. It's just too much change in one go. And so that's why it's so important to work with people and, and kind of make changes in the right direction. But it is a never ending journey. So like, for example, I may have lost a bunch of weight and my diet may be loads better than it was, you know, five, six years ago. But there are still massive portions of my diet that are not healthy. And so there are still massive improvements that I can make in how I do things. So it's still about, it's about always thinking. It's not about going, oh, okay, well, I lost 10 kilos. So that means I'm cool now. I can do what I want. Um, it's about realizing that there are always improvements that you can make. And that journey is never, never ending. But you don't have to always make those improvements. You know, there is, there is this sort of level of moderation, which is totally fine. But if you want to keep improving, you can. Yeah, I think that, I think that's really important as well. That last point that you made, because what I see, you know, some some people, and I've felt this in myself at times, where we put health as like this kind of central ideal, as if it's a god that we have to orient ourselves around. And this this is fine if you're like, you know, for, for example, some personal trainers and people who are quite into bodybuilding, let's say, like they will make every decision in their life in accordance with that ideal of, or in that case, it might be building more muscle, but it's all in some ways oriented towards health. So for example, what do you do before bed? You know, it, if I ask you that question, you know, what do you do before you go to bed at night? Um, and then I ask someone who's a bodybuilder and I ask an average person on the street, the person who's maybe a bodybuilder or obsessed with health, they're thinking about all right, before bed, that equals uh, sleep routine. Let's optimize sleep. Boom. Like everything is oriented towards that goal. Yeah. It's the same when you look at a plate, it's no longer a food experience. You know, a chef would look at a, a plate and see something very different to that, that a, a bodybuilder or a health, uh, a health obsessed person will look at the plate. And I think realizing that and recognizing that, you know, how, how much health, the role the health plays in your life, you're actually allowed to vary that. Like you're allowed to accept trade-offs while recognizing that, you know, some improvements are definitely worthwhile. But what, what I often see and what I felt myself moving towards in the past is trying to just optimize everything and then not being able to understand my client's perspective if they weren't willing to go to bed before 10 p.m. Like, why are you not doing that? You know, why would you not do that? And, and like for me, then it kind of caused me to reflect on my own life and think, well, Gary, you're willing to maybe do more exercise and types of exercise that probably put you at risk of injury. That's a trade-off in health. I'm willing to accept that. That's fine. I'm also um, in medical school while trying to run a business and I probably don't sleep enough a lot of the time and I'm probably more stressed than I need to be. Again, there are trade-offs that I accept in my health. But at the same time, I'm exercising regularly. I eat well. I try to sleep enough. So the word that you used at the start there was that intention to improve your lifestyle. And I think that is super important that we focus on the intention to improve something rather than saying everyone needs to have health at that center of their ideal. Because for me, that, that, that's, that's just some sort of religion. That's not, that's not lifestyle medicine, I think. And, and you also risk really struggling in the future because let's say, let's say you're like that, you know, you're, you're making all these sacrifices, you're doing all these things for your health and that's all you live for. Yeah. And then what happens if you get injured? What happens if you get a, a chronic illness that you, that, you know, has nothing to do with your lifestyle. Um, and then suddenly you lose your whole identity because your identity is based around something that you have mainly because of your privilege. Like we're privileged to have health. 
Um, and that's why, like, again, from the other point of view, it's important not to take it for granted and to try and optimize sure. it as much as we can. But at the same time, I think one thing that is so important that for people to remember is that health isn't a binary issue. It's, you are not either healthy or unhealthy. There isn't, there is no food that is healthy or unhealthy. You know, everything has different qualities, different drawbacks, and you know, it's all about everything jumbling together to, to make health. And how we measure health is also massively up for debate because a lot of people, you know, if we, if we look at the health magazines from recent times, we would think that health equates to a spray tan, um, Photoshop and six pack abs. Whereas in reality, that even the process of getting to that levels of health can have huge impacts on people's mental health on their menstrual cycles for example um you know and and on their psychology and stuff and in terms of what they're you know what they are focused on in their lives and we forget that health isn't just about one thing it's not just about how much weight you're carrying um and it's not just about your blood pressure it's not just about your cholesterol it's not just about what diseases you have it's about so many different things yeah and i think the ironic thing there is that putting that that again that health god at the center um of your whole life and orienting everything towards that that can actually have you know paradoxical effects it can compromise your health at times because if you push so far in the direction of optimal nutrition optimal training etc what you end up doing is compromising things like your uh social connections your psychological well-being mm-hmm. you know do you mm-hmm. do you have a sense of meaning and purpose beyond just health you know when you go to work every day do you actually see a, a reason for being there are you, are you happy there are you getting on with your colleagues or are you the person who's just sitting down with your tupperware and not caring about about anything else because you're saying i'm this lone wolf on this journey man look at my macros you know because yeah. That's fine. And I, especially I think in your early twenties, like, cause I used, I definitely liked that when I first got into the gym, I thought that my own journey of just, you know, improving my building more muscle training, et cetera, like that was all that mattered. And that carried me forward for a while, but there comes a point where you're like, okay, I think I know it's not, I know it's healthy to not drink. Okay. I know that's generally healthful, but I'm actually not going out and meeting up with my friends anymore. That compromises your social support. I'm not actually having any enjoyment outside of the gym. Like, is that a good thing? And I started to call a lot of things into, into question. And I think psychologically meeting friends more often, you know, going for a few drinks every now and then it's probably more healthful for me at least than being, you know, completely abstinent as I was back then. And I think that's something to, that's difficult to see when you're on that path, when you're so focused on it. But if you can zoom out and detach, um, I think I, I think it does change your perspective a bit. Because, and, and I think there's, there's fear involved in that because I think sure. when you are so focused and you are making progress, you're so scared of anything messing with that and thinking that, well, what if, you know, what if things spiral out of control? What if I, you know, what if I have an ice cream and spiral out of control? Like, what if I have a few drinks and spiral out of control? And I think everybody has different relationships with those things. And so has different sort of risk levels in terms of what that would result in. And also, I think it changes throughout your life. Like, I, I still also think when I look back at times when I was a bit, you know, a bit food obsessed, I'm still sort of grateful for for that process because it taught me so much about about the about that process. Also, that level I, I kind of think as well, like lifestyle changes 
so difficult to make happen permanently that I kind of sometimes look back and think, well, maybe you needed to be a little bit obsessed for a little while in order to actually make those changes bed in. But it doesn't mean I would recommend being that obsessed to other people. Um, and I'm glad that I had enough decent people around me to kind of pull me out of it. And, and, and so that I didn't go down a path that could have potentially been quite dangerous. And that's, that's why it's so difficult to give advice to other people on, on this sort of stuff, because I think these journeys are so personal and in some ways that's quite liberating from kind of a lifestyle medicine point of view, because you just think, well, I, I, people need to figure this out for themselves and you can kind of assist them, but there's not, there's not always loads I think that you can do. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, I think that's an important point because again, it's, it's just another case of like being empathetic towards others because I'm like, I'm sure you've seen this yourself where there's, there can be quite explosive debates between some people on Instagram in the like, anti-diet side of things and the people who are like more like pro calorie tracking let's track yeah. everything you know yeah. and like almost always the person who's telling the other person from the anti-diet side of things like and there's valid points to be said there what they're not realizing is that like you have spent 10 years tracking and then came to the realization that tracking is not the way, you know? And so that's, and, and personally, like I don't track my calories anymore. At least I very rarely do. And I haven't done so for maybe three years or so, but I spent the first five years of being into the gym and training doing so, you know, mm -hmm. I I've been through there. I've been at the low points. I've been at higher points. And I've been, like you said, on that kind of spiral journey of improving your lifestyle of being too obsessed at times, maybe pulling off the gas too much at other times. And the reality is that all of those changes bring lessons with them. And I think that if you're trying to start someone off on the point that you got to after 10 years of messing things up, we don't know that that's actually going to, to be useful, you know, because I would find it very difficult to take a client on who I'm trying to help them with their nutrition and say, we're not going to, we're not going to, you know, track anything. I just want you to use hunger cues. Like for, for some people, man, that might be fantastic. It might work, but everyone starts at a different point. People, as you said, carry different risks of different problems associated with lifestyle change. That includes nutrition. Some people can be too obsessive and it can become pathological at times and knowing when to pull back is important. But mm -hmm. that, that point of empathy, again, is just so important because people like, like you and me and anyone who's been in the game of trying to improve their lifestyle for five or 10 years, we are not at the same point of the person who's in their first year. And we need to understand that and, and trying to walk in their shoes it's difficult because your knowledge obstructs you from seeing it from their perspective. That, this is the thing is that on one hand, we sort of, we're selling people hindsight and exactly. it doesn't That's always it. work because you, sometimes you need, you need to have hindsight to have it. Um, but I think the other thing like, about empathy as well is that by definition, a lot of the, a lot of, a lot of the things that, you know, I say fitness people or people who are interested in lifestyle medicine, a lot of the things that they do, are things that they've always done. So they are, a lot of people are personal trainers or are interested in lifestyle medicine because they've always had a passion or an interest in, in fitness. And I think that's when it, there's this huge gulf between you and the people that you're, that you're trying to help. Um, and even with me now, because I've been doing things a different way for so many years, I've sometimes forgotten about that golf as well and about how you know what did I not know at the time what did I need 
you know, what would have been really useful for somebody to tell me 10 years ago. And I think that's what's quite tricky because again, because you've, because, because you've been through this long journey or it's just normal to you, you you do forget about all of those steps to get there. And again, you're trying to get people to run before they can walk. And I think it's, I think it's a really, really, really tough road to manage. Um, and I think that, that we would do better to take more guidance from the people that we're trying to help. Um, and that's difficult because I think it's often quite difficult to be, for people to have insight into their own issues. Yes. So to understand their own relationships with food or what works for them and what doesn't work for them. Because if, when, I, when I talk about, or when I used to talk about what worked for me, very different than what actually worked for me. It's just what I made up in my head. And, and I, I think that's, the, that's one of the hardest bits about anything to do with fitness is that, that like, like you're talking about tracking, for example, I'm tracking at the moment. And I have been for, a lot, for the last few months because I had ended up um, putting on weight, wanted to lose it, had tried intuitive eating, but wasn't really all in. I'd kind of dipped my toes into it, but just enough to make myself put on loads of weight because I had freedom to eat whatever I wanted and all of that kind of stuff. And I, I used it against myself as I knew I would because I was like, yeah, I'm just, I feel my body needs food now when actually it doesn't. Oh yeah. I think I just need ice cream again. Yeah. Um, you know, and it was more like, <laughs> you know, it was just, it was, it was, it was just one of those moments where that wasn't probably the right moment for me to do intuitive eating. Um, and so I was like, right, I need to just get back on track a little bit. And I started tracking and it's so comfortable for me to track yeah. because I'm super experienced with tracking. I barely need to actually put it into an app or anything because I know what the calories are and everything. And at the moment, socializing isn't so much of an issue. Eating out and going out for drinks and stuff isn't really happening so much in my world at the moment. So actually it's crazy easy for me to be adherent with it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's psychologically the best thing for me to be doing at the moment. Would I be better off working on, you know, intuitive eating, working on hunger cues and all that kind of stuff? Probably yes. Do I save calories up for the end of the day so that I can eat a load of ice cream? Yes, I do. And, you know, it's, I recognize that these things aren't ideal, but you make excuses in your head you as to why it's okay at the moment, or this just is what works for me. And, you know, I, I don't need to eat breakfast because I'm not hungry and it doesn't affect my performance. But actually, is it affecting my training? Would it be better off if I was having a protein shake in the morning, you know, rather than using those calories later on for a Solero? Don't know, maybe. <laughs> Soleros are legit though. Like they're, they're, and they're only like, I, they're only around 100 calories, are they or something? They are 98 calories, sir. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> so obviously like you you've you've kind of walked you've walked the path like pretty far you you've tried the intuitive eating thing you've done the tracking thing you've successfully lost weight i see you're exercising albeit reluctantly reluctantly with those <laughs> those chain push-ups and stuff but what oh, yeah. were the what were the first steps for you like what was the one like why did you want to change in the in the beginning and, and what did you initially do or, or who put you on the path was there was there anyone yeah, so I, I'm going to be totally honest about this. And this is something that, I, that is, is difficult to say in the current climate. But I, I wanted to not be fat anymore. I wanted to look better. I, I wasn't, I don't know that deep down, I was particularly bothered about health. But I did, the only thing that made me actually change was when I did start to get concerned about health. A friend of mine, 
who was a guy that he was older than me in his mid thirties at the time, um, had a heart attack, super fit guy, played loads of rugby, really, you know, in good shape. Um, and that was pretty terrifying. And I was like, well, you know, like if, if this guy can have a heart attack, then what hope is there for me? You know, like the way that I live and all of that kind of stuff. So I was like, I need to change. Um, but it was all about weight loss. It was all about, um, improving things from that point of view and I guess like the first step I mean I tried a bunch of different ways of exercising so I tried cycling I tried running um I tried you know I tried walking (laughs) which didn't get me very far um and just started calorie counting and I just didn't really get into any of those forms of exercise to be honest and I'd always kind of wanted to think about the gym but the gym was like a too scary a place for me it was like the idea of me going to the gym is just not going to happen um and especially like weight training like that it was so far off the scale like i had been to the gym like in when i was a medical student i was put on placement in devon and there was only one tv for all of the people in the hospital and I wanted to watch EastEnders <laughs> and other people in the hospital for some reason didn't want to watch EastEnders. Don't know why. So I joined a gym so I could go and sit on like the exercise bike to watch EastEnders on the like, <laughs> gym TV. Um, and that, that was, that was the level at which it, of which of how ludicrous it would be for me to, to even go to a gym like that. I joined the gym for the TV. So when it, when it came to it, I was like, right, I need to do something. So I'm going to join this gym. Um, but I feel super awkward about going to the gym. So I'm going to just do 15 minutes on the cross trainer and 15 minutes on the exercise bike. And I'm going to do that three times a week until I feel less weird about going to the gym. And then, you know, I did that probably for a few months and then it progressed to me using the, um, the rowing machine. And then there was, I had this moment where um, I was starting to, you know, to to try and get better at rowing and to be rowing faster. And I I rowed vigorously. And as I pulled back on, on the rower, I flew backwards, slid off the seat and landed kind of, so my feet were obviously strapped in. My hand was on the floor. My other hand was holding the rowing bar. And I was like, what do I do with my life now? I, I'm stuck here for all eternity because I physically can't get up. I can't take my hand off the floor because it's the only thing that's keeping me up. I can't take my feet off these stirrups because I can't get them out. I can't let go of this bar because if I do, it's going to like twang back and alert all of these people to now look at me and start laughing at me. So I'm just, this is my life now. I'm stuck here <laughs> for the rest of my life. Um, and when you've had that moment of like clarity of the world, you suddenly realize like this is rock bottom. <laughs> I am like, you know, this super overweight guy who also, by the way, it took me like I, I was using the rowing machine so many times. And every time I would sit on the rowing machine and I would press all the buttons to try and turn on the display and I would like be smacking it, be like freaking turn on. And then somehow it would just turn on. And after I'd been using it like five or six times, I remember this like really in shape guy coming up to me and going, oh, dude, by the way, it just comes on automatically when you start rowing. 
And I was like, oh, okay, cool, thanks. You know, that this was my level of cluelessness and my level of like embarrassing rock bottom that I was just like, it doesn't get worse than this. So now I don't have to worry about what people think of me in the gym because if anyone's already seen me, then they already think I'm a massive weirdo. So let's just go with it. Um, and that's when I started to try weight training. And that was, that was kind of what, what changed everything because as much as I still am very reluctant with it i just remember this feeling of thinking okay like when i do a 5k run two minutes into it i'm like this is the worst thing that's ever happened yeah. to me i hate <laughs> i want it to stop why can't it stop and i've still got 28 minutes left of, of this run to do whereas if i'm doing like six heavy squats and three squats in i'm like oh my god i i want the world to end this is so difficult how am i going to carry on i've just got three left and then it's done <laughs> And then I get to stop and just chill out for a little bit. Yeah. So it was a bit of a no brainer for me. And I had never really contemplated that that would be, you know, that was the one thing I'd never tried because it was the one thing that I just assumed I would definitely hate and be terrible at. Yeah. Like if you don't like being covered in sweat all the time and just being like panting throughout the exercise, like weight training is actually pretty good because yeah. you can actually just make the excuse that like, I'm actually just training for strength. So I never do over five reps and like, yeah you're barely even out of breath during your yeah. workout. Yeah. And exactly. has, has, has it changed since? Like, do you, do you enjoy training at the moment or you don't have to, but do you? I mean, like I, I have a complicated relationship with training. I would say like, I definitely, I, I enjoy being someone who trains. Yes. I enjoy having trained. Like, I'm not going to lie. I look forward to the end of the session. I'm not sad when it's over but I'm happier when it's finished than I am when it started. Mm -hmm. And so I think that training gives me a lot of benefits. Um, but the thing that I still struggle with is enjoying the moment of training. So that feeling of feeling like, you know, fatigued and out of breath, I still am like, oh, I just want to be on a sofa. You know, there is, I still just have that automatic want to like lounge. So I really like exercises where you lie down. That's yeah. great for me. <laughs> oh man <laughs> but i i actually do think to be fair to be serious from what i do think that's actually important to for people to hear that because like what i hear sometimes from people especially because like i just i love training and i i that it doesn't have it doesn't have to be anything in particular but like that feeling of like being really fatigued and sore like i like that i'm like yeah i want to really? feel like that more like i but it's so cool. but at the same time it's not see it sounds real hardcore when you say it like i love that i'm thirsty for blood like it's not like that it's more it's more just a case of like i like i like that feeling i like knowing that i pushed myself and the feeling yeah. of like coming to the end of a set and being let's say you're on the ninth rep or whatever and that's really that's really hard and then you do a tenth and then you do the tenth and i'm like oh yeah that was a great feeling because you could have bitched out and stopped and that would be a shit feeling so it's more so like those kind of psychological back and forth yeah, rather, i agree i like that too yeah rather than being like oh i actually you know want my muscles to burn like this 24 hours a day like no yeah. one wants that you know if you felt like that without training you should probably see a doctor you know uh, exactly. dr mike exactly. the second <laughs> but but in all seriousness like because 
some people um i know there's been like more of a, a push uh, from from some, some physios at least to be like you know oh no you know we obviously have our exercise guidelines but it's important for people to just find activities that they enjoy and just to do those but at the same time like i think we have to understand what enjoyment actually is and as you yeah, said that's really tough the, isn't it yeah it's it's the pleasure the pleasure that comes after that act, that that can be counted as enjoyment like it yeah. doesn't mean that every moment of it has to be enjoyable yeah. but when we actually measure enjoyment over decades like is is can can we consider um, enjoyment of activity if you just barely do anything and as a result you have too much atrophy and you have sarcopenia when yeah. you've aged and that compromises your quality and quantity of life like that reduces enjoyment of life long term and if you actually think about not just before the session during the session and after the session but also after the week after the month after the year after the decade i think enjoyment begins to add up a bit more and yeah. i think the other thing is that you mentioned as well is you like the identity of being someone who trains. And I think that is so incredibly important. I don't know if you've read Atomic Habits by James Clear. You, prob- you probably have. Every- everyone's read it. Um, but that- that's one of the-, the points that he really you know, emphasizes is rather than focusing you know, solely on the habits themselves, focus on the identity that's associated with it. And for me, that's something that I've really cultivated, like sp- trying to be someone who enjoys the feeling of suffering yeah. in the gym yeah. you know, like if go ahead i was gonna say do you know what book i like even more than atomic habits go <laughs> i'm not gonna say what you think i'm gonna say <laughs> there's a book called willpower doesn't work by benjamin hardy okay i haven't heard of that and that I, I think it's an incredible book it, it, i would say it's my favorite book in that in that kind of genre of books because it kind of makes that leap and that understanding that I mean, I, th- I think it complements Atomic Habits really, really well. Like Atomic Habits is, is all, almost like a more kind of practical guide about how to develop this stuff. The willpower doesn't work is, is, is all about kind of, you know, curating those identities. And, and I know he's got a new book coming out that's about how, you know, like your identity can be changeable. Like, so a lot of people, a lot of people, um, because of these ideas, people put themselves in these boxes and these categories, like, oh, I'm just not somebody who does X. You know, like they think that that's a personality trait and that isn't changeable. So if that had been the case, that's what I would have said ages ago. Like, I, you know, I want to be someone who trains, but I can't be because I'm just not, I'm not the kind of person that goes to the gym, you know? Um, and I think that's something that's super important for people to realize is that actually we put a lot of restrictions on ourselves and I think we do it because it's easier than, than not. And, and those restrictions stop us from achieving a lot of things that we want to achieve. But equally, I think that, I think when it comes to stuff like, like identity and, and enjoyment, we have to remember that most of the things that we quote unquote enjoy also have parts of them that we don't enjoy. But we put up with those parts because we enjoy the bits that we do enjoy. And it's the same, I think, with exercise, like drinking, for example. Nobody has ever enjoyed a hangover in the history of the planet. No. (laughs) Yet somehow drinking is the most popular form of enjoyment, like of any that I know among most people. And nobody is like, I mean, how have people not decided to stop drinking because hangovers are so awful? how have people not decided to stop giving birth because like labor is so awful. It's because the other things 
give them that enjoyment and to them that that enjoyment outweighs it and so that's why when people are saying stuff like find exercise and find activity that you enjoy it's finding stuff where the benefits outweigh the disadvantages like and that's that's the thing in in life but those those benefits don't have to happen at the time Uh, and those the advantages don't have to happen at the time and i think that's what people forget and don't realize but i also remember people telling me oh yeah just keep running like eventually you'll just become like addicted to it and it would because it's so addictive and i'm not i'm not kidding i ran three five k's a week for at least a year and i hated it just as much at the end of that year as i did at the beginning i was like this is so awful like there's nothing good about this yeah no i think that that is important too that's an important distinction because like well, it's okay to kind of be like, oh yeah, you know, I, I don't really enjoy this, but you know, I'll, I'll embrace the suck. Like I definitely have a bias towards that mindset. But at the same time, like if you run three, five Ks a week for a year and you still have absolutely no interest in doing it and yeah. it feels horrible, like there's surely something better. You know, there's probably exactly. something else that you could do or at least diversify it a bit like maybe it's the case that monday you do your 5k great that's out of the week or that's out of the way and then maybe a bit of weight training on wednesday like yeah i still don't love it but you know it's a bit of a bit of a change you know new environment etc and then maybe on friday you do something that's group-based and group-based activities i think could be particularly useful for fostering that kind of uh, that that identity like what this is an in, this is an interesting one because it probably it probably counters a lot of like other medical student experiences but basically what what we've what we've done in our class it's really interesting is we've got a whatsapp group that's like it's titled the mediocre gym goers because basically i call us all mediocre gym goers but there's a there's a chat it's about a third of the class is in that chat that chat now on whatsapp and basically what happens is every morning at maybe seven o'clock or eight o'clock depending on the time it's covid slots at the moment basically we go and we train before college. So people get into the gym, everyone's up early, you're into the gym before college and you only get into the chat if you've shown up twice in in one week. So you show up twice in one week, boom, we add you to the chat and then you stop showing up, you get kicked out. So we actually got this like, it's like this amazing social proof uh, where, where it's like, oh yeah, we're actually, we're, we're all, we're all medical students, but we, we go to the gym. Like that's what we do. We get up in the morning, we go and we train. So then when you wake up in the morning and you're feeling tired, you're like, oh, I don't want to deal with the stick that I'm going to get in the chat. So, uh, you know, I'm actually just going to go, you know, I don't feel like it, but I'm going to go. And then afterwards you're like, oh, I get to give other people a stick because they didn't show up. Like, where were you this morning, Mike? <laughs> you know, uh, So it actually becomes like more of a novel thing. But in all seriousness, like I've, I've obviously been the person who are me and a few others would have like always gone to the gym, but it's been interesting to see how people who maybe wouldn't go to the gym that regularly, or they'd be unlikely to show up at seven o'clock in the morning, how consistent people have actually been just as a result of that, because there's something else. There's an identity component built into it. And like, if you can build that out yourself with, I don't know, friends that you have or your family members or whatever, like that's quite powerful when you add it up over the, over years, because especially in something like medical school where you can, you know, once it gets stressful, it's very tempting to just eat chocolate and not train and stay up all night and drink coffee at four in the morning, that kind of thing. Like it's, that's, that's, that's something that could potentially really improve the health of different people within the yeah. class or whatever that may not have otherwise gone to the gym. So it's not a miracle, but I think 
bringing that social element in can be quite powerful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like that, that was massive for me with with my my sadly now closed down gym. Like that was the biggest thing I think that that made the changes for me was having that that community and having those people like being you know the early morning Metcon club and all of that yeah. kind of stuff and it's just it's super super powerful and i think that's again part of it is finding what it is that keeps you keeps you interested like you have to find something that keeps you interested otherwise you won't carry on doing it yep and there might be a little bit of suck along the way you might like doing your push-ups with your chains but um it actually is it actually is cool watching some of your your videos that you do put up though because i think it's good for people to see that like like Mike's complaining, like Mike's giving out to his, but you're giving out to your personal trainer. You're like, ah, I don't want to be doing this, but you are doing it anyway. And you you kind of step back at the end of it and you're like, yeah, you know, that's, that's just what I do. I show up to the sessions. I don't necessarily like them all the time, but it's still a case of that being your identity and that contributes to your health. And that's something Mm -hmm. that carries over, carries over long-term because we're not all going to be, um, obsessed gym freaks who you know are always on the motivational high and pushing everyone else and that's okay you know that's fine yeah i i i have a really again a really interesting relationship with positivity and with all that kind of stuff because i think again what i worry about with my with with that with exactly what you said and i've reflected on this quite a lot is am i then creating an identity of failure am i creating this identity where i complain all the time am i stopping myself from enjoying it because i'm complaining and and i go i go up and down on it a lot and I, it was interesting because i think that started to happen fairly recently i think that there became a point where i was like you know what when i post um when I post videos of me being shit at exercise on Instagram, I get a lot more positive feedback than I do about posting videos of me being good at exercise and doing proper reps. And, and, you know, like not that I really ever did that because I'm like, who wants to see videos of me doing exercise? So I made this very conscious change where I was like, I will complain if I want to complain. However, I will not, do an imperfect rep and if i do i will do this you know like i will do it again i will change it and i i made this sort of pledge with my coach really annoyingly because he reminds me of it every single session um and i was just like i'm not going to accept mediocrity i might complain and i might whinge but i have to do it properly even if i complain the whole way through it i want my depth on my split squats to be perfect i want my you know i want my push-up form to be perfect that's that's a non-negotiable at this point now and if if it involves me having to work harder then that's just what i'll have to do but you know like the to use the term you used earlier bitching out of it because it's funny for instagram is not who i want to be yeah no that that is really important because there's actually a guy like similar to yourself who goes to the gym every morning with us and he's like he's so consistent but he's the type of guy who like he does it because he needs to do, he knows he needs to do it and he feels better for it but at the at the time he's like like he'll like look at me on the assault bike or something and he's like you're sick you know you you're <laughs> he says you're a mentalist that's his phrase he's from the uk so i don't know if you guys say that but you're a mentalist is what he said like you actually like this stuff but his whole thing is like i do not like this but i'm going to do it anyway and that's fine and i think that's that's incredibly positive because you know he's still he's still he still has some sort of a positive attitude towards it he's still showing up all the time he knows yeah. he feels better for it it's making yeah. his life better and for yeah. me for me at least i think it's really good for me to see those types of people because yeah. 
I end up like uh, my, my bias is to kind of even caricature my personality sometimes to be like, yeah, let's all fucking train all the time. It's too easy. You know, that kind of thing. Like, let's go guys. Let's work harder. Like I've seen your assault bike sessions. Yeah. Like that, but that type of thing, like I kind of mess around with it on Instagram and like, oh yeah, I'm sitting on the toilet recovering. It feels so good. Like, you know, that kind of thing. But like that, and but it's good. It's good coming from that perspective to see other people who are like, maybe being more negative about it, but not yeah. pushing it too far to the other side of the spectrum. Because yeah. if like, if like that guy that goes to the gym, if he was always like, Oh no, I don't want to go to the gym. I haven't gone in a week. It's so shit. I don't want to do anything. It's just boring. Like I'd have no time for that, but I yeah. do definitely have time for that, that more balanced perspective, like you said. Yeah. And I think it's fine. It is. You've got to find that balance between, you know, finding it uncomfortable, but it being good for you and you ultimately enjoying that and hating it so much that you just never want to go back. And I think that's one of the things that is, is hard to achieve. Like I, the, the first coach I worked with, I mean, at the end of every single session, I was totally destroyed. Like I was, and part of that was because I was starting from a place of, of, of minimal fitness and the progress I made in that time was phenomenal. But every session would end with either like heavy prowler or sled push, heavy um, like, like what bike session like sprints like to the point where you know frequently i would have to sit down with my head between my knees for 10 to 15 minutes before i was safe to drive home after the session and i think that you know there's something to be said for that because again you feel a bit like you feel like you're working really hard and that's that's really cool but also it is hampering your performance in other ways. Like I would do that session and then I would be on the sofa for the rest of the day. You know, like I would then do nothing. I would then not be able to, you know, barely go out for a walk. I'd have the doms for the next three days where I could barely do anything. And, you know, when you, when you think like what your actual goals are, that's not necessarily ideal. And I think it brings us back to that thing that we were talking about, about, about people sort of seeing that religion of health where that's the only thing that they're, they're focused on. Yeah. And I think it introduces, like, I, I'm sure that you've reflected a lot on, like, the morality side of, um, like, training and fitness and how, like, the martyrdom, that it has so many parallels with religion. Like, the suffering is so important to people yeah. because it makes them feel like they're superior to everybody else. And then they can look down on those people. And then, and they don't even realize that they're doing it. I didn't realize I, I did it at the time. You know, I would post pictures of my disgusting food on Instagram but I would be so proud that I was eating just tuna out of a can with some pepper because that was what it takes, you know? And it was like, it was, it, I'm sure that other people would look at that like while eating their donut and go, oh, you know, feel a bit bad about themselves. And that was never my intention, but I'm sure that that's kind of what it did. I think that that, that morality aspect is one of our biggest challenges. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, yeah, it's actually something I was only talking about this with a friend the other day. Who, um, but yeah, like this was actually one of like <laughs> you're gonna mock me for bringing this up, but it's actually one of Friedrich Nietzsche's uh, criticisms of Stoicism was the emphasis. Oh, have you heard of Have you heard of Nietzsche? I heard of him once or twice. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> he um, he used to. He's one of his criticisms of Stoicism was basically the ascetic elements of it and ascetic or asceticism basically being voluntary suffering and the idea like that you just kind of remove all pleasures and just make life hard but the but Nietzsche's criticism was that if you're making life hard 
just for the sake of making life hard. That is another example of uh, a human's will to will to power, which is Nietzsche's phrase. And will to power in this case being, let's say, the exam- one example would be external, so inter-individual. So my will to power over you would be me showing you how much power I have over my hunger, over my control, over my desire for pleasure by saying that, um, hey, look, I'm able to eat tuna and peas and I don't need anything else. Like, look at you, you're such a bitch, you know? And that's kind of the approach that some people have. And like, that is just, that's, that's an example of, you know, me projecting my will to power. Whereas then there's also a, an intra individual element to it where if I can show myself that I can overcome all desire for pleasure, I feel more powerful because look, yeah. I overcame the desire for the donut. Yes, I could have had it, but I overcame that desire. And for me, there's a fine balance to be struck there because I think uh, our desire for control and certainty as humans uh, is understandable in that, in that, like you don't want to feel chaotic. Like I don't want to feel like I have no control over my food choices or what I do every day. And that's a horrible feeling. You want to feel like you have some control, but if all you're doing is exerting control and exerting that will to power for its sake as its own end, I think that's, um, that can potentially become become pathological. And that, that would be the type of person who goes to the gym just to hurt themselves and the outcome is the soreness. That's, that's where it becomes more pathological. And that's what a lot of people do. They measure the success of their workouts by how sore they were, or they measure the success of their diet by how little pressure they, pleasure they get from it. Like people who voluntarily will avoid things like artificial sweeteners or you know uh, some sauce on their chicken purely because it feels more hardcore and for me that's where the the kind of that you could call it a moral element but that's because where it becomes a little bit more pathological i think where it's asceticism for asceticism's sake and that's a, that would be a, crit- a criticism of christianity and, and religions in general um sometimes as well so where do you, and where do you fall on like so for example i often I often reflect quite a lot on, you know, when you look at things like the supplement industry and you look at um, all of the minutiae that people do, we did, we did actually a podcast um, with uh, Luke Hoffman from Muscle Mentors about this um, and about kind of people using supplements and people using, uh, I don't really know what to call the collection of stuff, but like, you know, like blue light blockers um grounding all of those sort of those like peripheral things like the the tracking of all the logs and all of those sorts of things that that people kind of obsess about these fine details about things um do you think that comes into it as well like that because i i i I sort of equate it sometimes to that feeling like when you really want to pass an exam, the first thing that you do is buy new pens or something because you kind of, you know, it like, it just renews, like just putting some money towards something or buying a new thing makes you like, feel like you're investing in, in, in that future. Do you think that's the sort of same sort of thing? Or do you think it's more like a suffering thing, like trying to make every aspect of your life be about health? Oh man, I love that point. And that, cause that this is actually something I think about with, every single area of my life whether it be studying or gym or whatever it is that like because i'm i was so guilty of that in my earlier years of health and fitness of like just trying to do everything for the sake of doing the things whether or not they actually benefited me like back in the day things like intra workout supplements and just taking lots of different supplements like having a pre an intra and a post workout supplement and being super precise about all that stuff like that was all the rage and it it gives you this feeling that 
hey, look, I'm doing more uh, than I maybe than I was doing previously, or I w- I'm doing more than everyone else is doing. And as a result, that makes me better. And you measure your, you measure your outcomes or you measure your, your self-valuation, you could say, by what you were doing rather than what you're actually getting from it. You know? So for example, if I have a, if I have a pre-bed routine that lasts an hour and a half and you know, it's compromising my relationship, but, it, but I go to bed thinking, yeah, what does my, my girlfriend or boyfriend, she doesn't get it. She's not like me. She doesn't understand. Like mm-hmm. that again, is just you kind of exerting some sort of uh, self-superiority, even though if you were to measure like all of those elements from a moral perspective or whatever, you could actually be like doing pretty bad things. Like that's not mm-hmm. necessarily a great way to live your life. And I think they're good. They're good examples of things like, I think things like grounding and blue light blocking glasses, et cetera, et cetera. All these different things that creep into your life as kind of peripheral things that like probably aren't going to have massively meaningful effects, maybe for some people in some cases, but doing all of those things and, you know, especially posting them on Instagram, which is what most people do. It's again, showing like, Hey, look, look how in the game I am, you know, look how much, look how much I'm doing. Look how in control I am of all of these things. Like you, Mike, you're training and you're tracking your nutrition, but you could be doing all this stuff as well. So you better get in the game, bro. Cause I'm in the game, you know? So yeah, it's, um, it's, it's something that I'm mindful of. And, and like the studying example as well, that's another one. You know, if you're, you, you can have all the perfect notes, you can have the perfect pens, you can have the perfect system for note-taking, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it's your knowledge and or competence that comes out of that, that actually matters. So for yeah. me, I, I try to focus far more on just like, how are you actually doing? Because it's just, it's just feelings. It's short-term feelings. It's like motivation that you get from those pens and stuff. It's like when you watch a video before the gym and it gives you this big shoe up the arse or you watch it on a Sunday evening being like, this is going to be the week. And you repeat yeah. that every week. It's just a feeling. That's all you're seeking. And it's, it's like some sort of self-validation, but it's not actually taking you closer to the outcome that you should yeah. be desiring, I think. No, I agree fully. Yeah, you could explore those topics for a long time, especially their mo- their moral elements. Um, I think if Friedrich Nietzsche was alive today, he'd have a lot to say about our our approach to to health. But um, oh, definitely. Not. And it's interesting that we don't really have like where are our where are the philosophers? They're on Instagram. Like that's all we have now. We don't have you know we 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 don't have those people to actually make comments on what's happening. We you, I guess we have people writing books and that kind of stuff, but it's not. It's not quite the same, is it? Yeah. Yeah, that's why you got to read old school stuff, man. Yeah, I know. Old books. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm still, I'm still, I just feel like, and this is the reason I made the comment earlier for anyone who's listening that thought I was taking the mic. I wasn't. But I, I really struggle with serious entertainment. So when I, like I, in my mind, I've spent my whole life reading books because I've had to read books yeah and um and spending all day at school or university or medical school or um or work doing really serious stuff about really in-depth intricate thinky things yeah so when I finish I want to watch like the worst tv you can find the worst films, and I want to read books by the worst people, if I'm going to read anything at all, and it will be an audio book. So, like, how do you maintain 
an interest in the serious stuff because in some ways like i find little tidbits of information like, like i find that what you just said really fascinating but i also would find it really difficult to motivate myself to go and read that actual book yeah well first of all what age, what age are you mike you can give us a range if you don't want us to say it <laughs> i'm in my 30s you're in your 30s yeah so I'm, t- I'm i'm 25 so i mean i think that's the first thing is that like i'm quite young so i always like to think that okay i could be actually way different when i'm mike's age you know when i'm an experienced gp experienced doctor whatever you know, I could have a very different perspective on things. But at this point in time, I think I'm very much in that stage of my life where like, let's get after it. Let's do all the deep, intricate stuff. Like I don't need Jessica Simpson audiobooks to, to keep me happy kind of thing. So I'm not, I'm not a very um, leisure kind of person, just watch things just to, to calm down. But that could change. I don't think that's necessarily helpful all the time. So that's my first caveat. Um, but in terms, of, in terms of like why I like to kind of read about philosophy and that types types of thing those types of things because it's kind of like what we just said is that we actually end up talking about these things and thinking about things like morality and the meaning of life and how to live a good life like we talk about them all the time like everyone in instagram talks about how to live a good life and yeah. i think if you actually I think reading things like philosophers who were around 100, 200, 500, 1000 years ago, and you see them asking the same questions, it's like, it kind of gives you this sort of intellectual humility where you're saying, I probably don't have the answer. Okay. I, it's very likely that I don't have the correct answer and that I could be living in a way that is potentially better or a way that is potentially better for the people around me. And I think if if you're if you're solely focused on you know consuming instagram content and you're listening to your favorite influencer talking about you know what the next step to uh, improve your way of life is and you then you read you read things that that are talking about the same, talking about similar questions for 2000 years you're kind of like maybe there's more to this you know maybe there are different questions i should ask maybe i can learn something from people in other cultures people who spent decades writing about this stuff and very often you will. And I think because, especially in philosophy, there are such fundamentally human questions, like what does it mean to live a good life? Like, like it's very difficult to answer that, you know, and, and people have spent decades contemplating it um, and exploring it. And, and yeah, I, I, like to, I like to read their thoughts because it stops me from being, I think, letting my own ego just kind of take charge and, and ascribe the meaning of life to myself and others, you know? Yeah, I think it's a good, I think it's a good thing to do. And it's, it interests me because I see this a lot with, you know, a lot of young people now, you know, when I was, when I was in my early twenties, like it, it would, like, and this is the one thing that I think Instagram has helped us with a little bit. Like, um, I don't think self-development was big when I was growing up or certainly wasn't massively accessible. Whereas now, a lot of, I mean, even unless you follow the most kind of basic of people on Instagram who just post selfies all the time, which I don't know if I'm just in an echo chamber or a bubble, but I feel like most of the people, even even people in in an industry that's somewhat superficial, like the fitness industry, people are still talking about self-development. They're still talking about business development. They're still talking about, you know, reading books and all of these kinds of stuff. Yeah. And so you're having like people in their late teens, early twenties, reading books like Atomic Habits that, you know, I didn't get to until very, very much later than that. And I find that really fascinating. Like sometimes I think if I had, if I had been aware of this 
all of these concepts when I was much, much younger. I wonder if I would have ever have needed to make, to do so much work on myself so much later down the line. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And, and I think, I think that's one of, that's one of those things where you could, I think there's pros and cons to it. I think there's pros and cons to being obsessed with that kind of self-development thing, because what it also does is it gives you hundreds of different paths to choose from, which could potentially be detrimental if you're already on a good path. Like in your case, yeah. right, you were, at med- you were at medical school, you were like, all right, I'm going to be a doctor, you know? So every day, you know, you wake up and you're like, okay, what do I need to do today to be a doctor? Cool, let's do those things. Very simple. Whereas now it's like you're reading a book and it's about this person who's talking about chasing your true passion and, and you're, they're like, uh, were you unhappy when you woke up today? And you were like, yes, we're doing neuropathology. How could I be happy yeah. about that? You know, how could I be happy about that? And you're like, okay. And they're, they, next thing, the self-development leads you, the self-development books start telling you to move to Thailand and start an inter- internet business, you know? And, and I've, I've been there, man, because I like, I've like, for me, the, the working online and being financially independent from online business that came before the medical school. So I think I'm in a, an interesting position where it's like, I've actually, I've felt all those, those outcomes of like being financially independent, being able to work anywhere, being able to, you know, travel if I wanted and that just not being a big deal. And I think it's interesting because I think philosophy was actually what probably led me to thinking really deeply about like, what, why, why is that good? You know, yeah, it feels nice. It's, it makes, it's makes good Instagram content. People love to hear it because it's like, you can escape your everyday life and live on your laptop, but the reality is often a lot less sexy. And I think this is what I feel sorry for people who are 17, 18, 19 now growing up is that you're actually being given countless different potential paths. And it's really difficult to see what the good path actually is because like your, your own valuation of, of, again, what it means to live a good life or what it means to be happy or whatever, like that can be influenced by countless different people, potentially thousands of people, depending on who you follow. And like, what's the right answer, you know? And that's a very, very good point. And, that, and I think that probably in some ways though, by having experienced that yourself, it probably will make your decision to go through medical school a lot more powerful. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I probably spent most of medical school doubting whether or not I was doing the right thing. And also perhaps if I'd read a book, if I'd read a book at that point and learned about the sunk cost fallacy, I'd have left yeah. medical school or I'd have left medicine. Like I remember being in my first, I remember qualifying being six months into my junior, my first junior doctor job and having to move to Luton. I don't know if you've ever been to Luton. It's not the loveliest of places. And actually I grew to absolutely love it. But um, I remember in the first week thinking, oh my God, what have I done with my life? I hate it. I hate this place. I'm here. Um, I hate my job. I, there isn't anything like this. This is awful. What have I done? I've, I've wasted six years of my life. But oh, well, I've wasted it now. I might as well carry on. And luckily, nobody told me about the sunk cost fallacy at that point, at which point I might have gone, oh, yeah, I need to I need to leave. Because at that time, I thought to myself, well, cool, I've invested all this time and effort into becoming a doctor. So I may as well carry on with it and make the most of it. But how can I optimize every other aspect of my life so that this isn't making me unhappy? And so I made loads of effort to do that. And then, of course, as is natural, by the time I had done all of that anyway, I didn't hate everything quite so much 
because I had learned how it's like, it's that realization that sometimes things are rubbish because they haven't got good yet or because you haven't got good at them yet, you know, and, and actually things are changeable and it's not necessarily that I often, I often find it interesting when people say that something makes them unhappy because I'm like, why does it make you unhappy? Have you decided that it makes you unhappy and that's what's making you unhappy? Yeah, is your expectation different? What, what do you, if you reframed your expectations, would this still be making you unhappy? It's really interesting. Yeah, and 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 I think I think another thing you like you just said there that um, you know something can make you feel rubbish along the way and eventually get good. And I think this is something that is actually not explained to people in the vast majority of self development books is that like when jobs get enjoyable it's generally when you have become to some degree competent enough to stand on your own and have an element of creativity and decision-making, et cetera. Because like, for example, when I go out and I'm an intern as a doctor, like you're doing the worst jobs, you're doing the shittiest jobs. You're not making, I imagine you're not making very influential decisions. You know, you're not doing all the, the sexy diagnoses, the rare diagnoses, the rare diseases. You're unlikely to be asking, you know, medical questions that are, rare or haven't been asked before or thinking about new problems because you don't have the level of competence yet to be able to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. But when you do get there, things get more enjoyable. It's like, it's like personal training. Initially when you're a personal trainer, it's really stressful and you're not sure about it because people are asking you questions. You know, very few of the answers to their questions. You don't feel like you have your own personal craft that you're working on because all you're trying to do is catch up and get the basic skills. But as you begin to gain comp- competence and and suddenly you're like okay you know i have the basics down i've worked with enough clients where i feel uncomfortable coaching most people and now i can get creative i can say okay you know this is the way that uh gary coaches i kind of i coach like this and i have my methods and then you start to discuss that with other professionals and suddenly there's creativity there's decision making and there's actually freedom and it's something that um that my it's someone who I'm a big fan of, Jacko Willink. If you're aware of him, he's um his his phrase is discipline equals freedom, and that you have to be able to put in discipline for a long period of time before you actually access that freedom that is available. And and that goes for medical school. You know, it's like you're learning all this boring stuff. You're learning the biochemistry, the pharmacology, the pathology, etc. It's all this boring stuff, but it lays the foundation on which the later capacity for decision making and creativity and enjoyment of your job where that actually comes. And on, on the, the point of this discussion, if someone comes in in the middle of that process, just when it's at its worst, let's say third year medical school, you're super stressed or whatever, someone comes in and says, hey, here's a self-development book that'll teach you how to be happy every morning you wake up. Like you're being given another path there that's very, very tempting, but may mm. not be the best path long-term. It might get you the point of being happy Dr. Mike the second, the experienced GP, you know, happy out with life now, you know? Yeah. It is interesting. It's very sliding doors, isn't it? Yep. There's no single way. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think that covers most of what we wanted to discuss and some, definitely some, yeah. some additional tangents. Um, Pretty much everything in the world. Yeah, we discussed, you know, morality, religion, uh, medicine, <laughs> etc. Uh, but actually, one, one question to finish off, just because uh, you have the expertise and I'm the, the minion, but what advice, because maybe some people in my class will listen to this. So as an experienced GP, what advice would you give to someone who's currently in medical school? And two, would you sell GP to them? And if so, how? Um, I, the advice I would give is to, is to really kind of like envelop yourself as much as you can. So 
like when you do attachments as a medical student, it's very, very easy to be like on the periphery to see these people working as doctors as like, oh, you know, I, I shouldn't really bother them. I should just stand in the background and, and, um, and, and watch, but try and learn as much as you can, like try and expose yourself to as much as you can, like speak to patients, present patients, like do all the stuff that just makes you feel a little bit icky and uncomfortable. Um, because actually once you qualify and once you, you know, like uh, once you are sort of even as a more senior level as a doctor, you kind of realize, God, it's so weird thinking that I'm the one that these medical students are coming and shadowing now. And they probably think that I'm really busy and important. And actually I'm just exactly the same person that I was in medical school, just bumbling around trying to figure stuff out. Um, and actually, like if you if you become part of that team, you'll learn so much more. So I think it's just like be a little bit annoying, like that. Be, give yourself license to just be a little bit annoying and just get you know. But be be nice, be nice to everybody, and um, and and be helpful. Um, and that will be a really good way of like actually understanding a bit more about what people do when they work in that job. Because this is the one thing that you'll never get as a junior doctor. You like it well no you do in general practice so like if you do a junior attachment in general practice it's a fairly reasonable assessment of what it's like to be a gp the workload is a lot less than when you're an actual gp but you kind of see this is the kind of patients you'll be seeing this is the kind of stuff you'll be expected to do these are the kinds of questions you'll be expected to answer whereas like to use orthopedic surgery as an example from before when you do orthopedic surgery as a junior doctor you don't get to spend that much time in theatre because you're too busy organising the patient list, seeing the patients, doing the ward rounds, getting the blood test done, all of those sorts of things like to help the organisation and the run, the running of it. Whereas when you're a medical student, you can go to theatre, you can assist in surgeries, you can, you can actually try and shadow the more senior members of the of the team to try and figure out what it is that they actually do day to day. So you can think more about what you're going to do in your career. Um, in terms of whether or not I would sell general practice. Um, I would never sell anything. I think if it needs to be sold, then it's not the right thing for you. But what I would do, what I would say to people, I, and I think, I think the biggest misconception about general practice is that it is the kind of job that you can do if you just haven't really managed to do the other things that you actually want to do. Um, general practice, if you don't love it, is a terrible, terrible, terrible career choice because if you don't love it, chances are you won't be very good at it and it will make you miserable because it's not the nine to five carefree tea and biscuits type of ideas that, that people used to tell us that it was, because I think there was a period of time when, when they, I don't know whether it ever was like that, but certainly that's what they used to tell us. Um, and it's a great, like, it's a great job. It's an incredibly privileged job. Like you get to speak to people all day. So if you like people, it's amazing. If you like variety, it's amazing. Um, and you have, and I think this is, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling now, but no, go ahead. medicine as a career, like you said before, but being a doctor means millions of different things. Like I think the most important thing that you can recognize is that the world is your oyster. A medical degree gives you the power to do so many different things that actually even if you're going through medical school thinking i'm not really sure if this is right for me there will be something that will be right for you within that and that will be it will be great um so yeah figure out what that is do it if you love it don't do it if you don't savage brilliant advice taken on board thank you Mike. Thanks.
so yeah that's the that's the end of this podcast guys um if people want to find out more about you the kind of stuff you do be putting out i'm subscribed to your newsletter really enjoying it so where can where can people hear more about dr mike um well dr mike the second so it's dr mike the second (laughs) at all of the social media um profiles facebook instagram twitter and dr mike the second.com um where you can subscribe to my weekly email which is just rambling really it's not particularly exciting but it's something that i enjoy doing and uh, i'm very grateful that you enjoy reading it thank you very much for that brilliant so thanks everyone for listening and uh, we will see you in the next episode of the podcast